You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. So the three words this morning that I hope we can remember and take away from Psalm 54 go like this. Pray, preach, praise. Those three words. I think we can, we can track with that, right? Pray, preach, and praise. These are the three words that outline for us Psalm 54, as we're going to see in a few moments here. And at the same time, though, these are three words that give us a three-part guide for what to do when we find ourselves in crisis situations. Psalm 54 is an amazingly practical psalm, and it's meant to be that for us. David here is meant to be a model of what what it looks like to be faithful to God. For the rest of book two here in the Psalms, from Psalm 51 through 72, except for two of the Psalms, they are all Psalms of David. And many of these Psalms have the little notes just above the first verse that tell us actually when in David's life he wrote these Psalms. And, And those little notes are above the Psalms, called superscripts. They're above the Psalms to help us link the Psalms to actual moments in David's life. And they are there to help us connect the dots to our own lives, to lead us to think about our own practical situations and circumstances. These Psalms, especially this section of Psalms, are for when we find our own selves in the midst of crisis. They are for when we are overwhelmed like David was by the threat of harm. They are for us when forces are set against us, and it seems like those forces are advancing against us. David shows us that when we find ourselves in situations like that, crisis situations, we do three things. Pray, preach and praise. I want to show you this in the psalm. I'm excited to show you, but first let's pray again and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you that there is life in your word. We ask this morning, Father, give us life according to your word. Refresh our hearts, still our faith in our thoughts and our actions. Make Jesus to stand forth as mighty and good for us because we know he is. We ask this in his name now. Amen. All right, the three words, one of my goals for the sermon, I've already been practicing this with the kids this week, one of my goals for the sermon is that these three words get stuck in our heads. Like, I want us to be able to, like, get these, nail these, and use these in the future. Three words, I'm going to say them again, and maybe, like, ten more times. The three words I want you to remember, you can say it with me if you get them already. Pray, preach, praise. That's right. Looking first at pray, it's, gonna, it's really nicely how the outline unfolds here. Look at verses 1 to 3 first. This is, this is pray. Oh God, David says, oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life, they do not set God before themselves. Right away, it's easy to see here that David is praying. 
and he's praying to God for two things. First, David prays that God would save him. And then second, David prays that God would hear his prayer to be saved. And the point there, I think, is to give you an idea of the kind of desperation David is in. Verse 3 tells us the occasion for this prayer. He says, verse 3, for, because, he's praying this because strangers have risen against him. Now in Psalm 86, verse 14, we see an exact repeat of this verse. Psalm 86, 14 is this exact same verse repeated, except there the word stranger is actually the word insolent men. And there's some questions as to why the psalmist exchanges these two words, but I think the same idea here is at work. These men, these enemies of David, at the very least are men who are estranged from him. These are men who don't know David, David doesn't know them, and they are insolent, they are irreverent, they are disrespectful to him. Verse 3 says that these men, these enemies are ruthless, they unjustly seek to destroy David. And that was certainly true of the Ziphites, the Ziphites, not a household name. Look at your Bibles for a second, right above verse 1. That little note above verse 1 in small caps, that's called a superscript, as many of you know. And like I mentioned earlier, these superscripts, these notes are added to the Psalms to tell us about the particular moment in David's life when he wrote the Psalms. And so for this Psalm, look at the superscript, it says there, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. And here, here it is, here's, here's the moment in David's life. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, quote, is not David hiding among us? So I need to tell you a story here about the Ziphites. The story behind Psalm 54 comes from 1 Samuel 23. David had been on the run from King Saul. Saul understood that David was a threat to his kingship, and so he wanted to hunt David down and kill David. And by the time of chapter 23 in 1 Samuel, David had built this ragtag army, somewhere between 400 and 600 men, and they were camping west of Jerusalem. And as they were camping, David gets word that the Philistines were attacking a little town called Kyla. The Philistines were just basically going in, robbing this, this little city of food. They were just going in, pillaging, just having their way with this little town. And this little town, this little city, Kyla, didn't really stand a chance against the Philistines. And so David inquired of Yahweh. He asked God, should I go and fight against the Philistines and save Kyla? And God tells him, yes, you should do that. The problem is David's men are reluctant. They don't want to do this. They, they already have been on the run from Saul. They're being chased by Saul and the army of Israel. And now this would mean that they're fighting the Philistines at the same time. It didn't make sense to them that they would get involved in that conflict. But David had asked God, and God told him to do it. And God promised David that I will give the Philistines into your hand. 
And so based upon that promise, based upon what God said, David and his men, they follow God's word, they do what God says, they attack the Philistines, and they were victorious. 1 Samuel 23 verse 5 says, so David saved the inhabitants of Kilah. And it caused a scene. It was a thing for David to defeat the Philistines here. So word gets back to Saul. People tell Saul, hey, we know where David is. David and his men are in the city of Kilah. And so Saul and his army advanced west toward the city of Kilah. And David knows that Saul is coming. And so David prays to God and he says to God, hey, when Saul gets here, is this city going to hand me over to him? Like, are they going to, this city that I just saved, are they going to hand me over to Saul? And, and God tells David, yep, they're going to hand you right over to Saul. And so David and his men are on the run again. They have to leave the city. They head south into the wilderness of Ziph. Okay, so everybody, meet Meet the inhabitants of Ziph called the Ziphites. Meet the Ziphites. As soon as the Ziphites found out about David being in their area, they go straight to Saul. As soon as they get word that he's in their wilderness, their domain, they go to Saul and they tell Saul about David's location. They go to Saul and they say to Saul, 1 Samuel 23, 19, is not David hiding among us? And you you hear that? That's the exact same quote in the superscript. So the superscript of Psalm 54 is taken straight from 1 Samuel 23, 19. The Ziphites betrayed David's location to Saul. Now, all the Ziphites knew about David was that he just saved their neighbor. But still they decide to set themselves against David, and they conspire together with Saul, and Saul gets very close to David. He gets really close to catching David. David on his men are in a hurry. Saul gets just around the corner from these men until suddenly Saul gets called back to Israel to fight against the Philistines because the Philistines had attacked Israel while Saul was away, which is there's an irony in the story here, see? David had saved Kilah by attacking the Philistines, and now God saves David by the Philistines attacking Israel. And the point I think of that is to say that God is the one who saves David. God saved David just like David prayed. And David prayed because he was in a crisis situation. He didn't waste any time trying to calculate his next move. He just prayed. He just prayed. He asked God for help because what else do you do when you find yourself in a place so out of your control? Like I'm talking about a place that seems like, by all accounts, somewhere you never wanted to be. Somewhere you never imagined yourself to be. A place that if things don't change, I'm going to be destroyed. This is a cutthroat dilemma here. 
I am stuck in a slow motion train wreck and I can't do anything to stop it. That's the situation David was in. And it's a situation that I think we all can relate to. Because one way or another, you've been there. You've been there when the stress is high and the prognosis is grim and the darkness is overwhelming. And when you are there, what do you do? You pray. You pray to God. You ask God to help you. And that alone, that prayer alone for God's help is evidence of God's grace to you. It's the simple fact that you are going to Him. It's that you know you can't, but He can. Like, that's the simplest way to understand prayer that I can think of. Like, that's the simplest explanation for what prayer is. It's that we can't, but God can. See, the only reason that we pray in the midst of crisis, or really the only reason that we pray in the midst of anything is because the grace at God, the grace of God is at work in us to cause us to desire things we can't create, and so we ask God to. You get that? It's always the work of God's grace in our lives. It's it's because we know what we desire, what we need, we can't make happen. We can't, but God can. It's that simple, right? It's the, it's the same reason that my five-year-old asked me to get him a cereal bowl from the cabinet, okay? So use, use your imaginations for a minute. I'm in the kitchen of my house, and the, the cabinet's here, the bowl's up here in the cabinet. So here's the bowl in the cabinet. I'm here, and the five-year-old's right here, right? So track with this. He can't reach the bowl. I can reach the bowl. So what should he do? Hey, Dad, will you get me a bowl? Right? That's simple. We get that. A few weeks ago um, at the uh, Ultimate Goal soccer camp, I was able to teach on prayer to a a bunch of kids, a big group of kids, uh, campers. And I was using this illustration to explain what prayer is, and I kind of laid it all out. I, I explained to them the, you know, that same sort of deal, and I said, okay, so here's my little boy. What should he do if he wants a bowl? And one of the campers was like, he should climb on the counter, you know. <laughs> and, and what was so funny about it is, like, that's what my kids do most of the time, right? Like, they, <laughs> they, 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 are, they are counter climbers, and and you know that's how kids are, right? Kids have their own way. A lot of times they get to that age where it's like, you know, they can do it. You know, I can, I can do it. I, I'm pretty sure I've been telling my kids to get off the counter for 15 years, <laughs> right? And then I realized that God has actually been telling me the same thing for about four decades. See, like, if we're honest, 
we're always like trying to climb the counter, right? Right? We're always just trying to climb up on the counter and do it ourselves. No, we got this. I can do it. And so I just wonder, like, what's it going to take for us to know that we can't, but God can? See, we need this kind of wisdom. We need this wisdom. The very act of prayer itself is the exact opposite of the fool in Psalm 53 who says there is no God. Praying itself, praying itself is the practice of not being that fool. And that's what David's shown us in Psalm 54, how not to be the fool of Psalm 53. And so following David's example in the midst of crisis, the first thing we do is we pray. We pray. And then we preach. Look at verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness put an end to them. So David has been speaking to God, and now I think David is speaking to himself. That's what I mean by preach. This is David's self-talk. This is how David addresses his own soul, like we've seen him do elsewhere in the Psalms. David is preaching the truth of God to himself. He looks at his heart, and he says, behold, right? Get this. Wake up. Look. That's what he's saying to his soul. See, in praying, David brings himself before God's attention. But now in preaching, David brings God before his own attention. And he remembers the God to whom he prays. David makes that clear in verse 4, but it doesn't start there. Right at the beginning of this prayer in verse 1, we can see that David knows who God is. That's evident in David's appeal there in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again for a minute. David prays, O God, save me by your name, which means David must know something about God's name. And he prays this way, appealing to God's name for good reason. Remember David's enemy in verse 3. This enemy had come out of nowhere. These Ziphites had come out of nowhere while David was on the run from Saul. They were a stranger enemy to David. And at the end of verse 3 here, David links them to the fool of Psalm 53. He's drawing a line here. These ruthless men, his enemy, do not set God before themselves. David's enemy was precisely the type who says there is no God, which like Ryan explained last week, it's not that they don't believe God exists, it's that they don't submit to him. According to David's enemy, God is real and he's out there and that's all fine, but to them, God is not worthy of their honor, and so they don't acknowledge him, they ignore him. And so when David says, oh God, save me by your name, he is saying, save me according to your reputation that my enemy has defamed. He's praying, oh God, hallow your name by saving me from those who have belittled it. David is asking God to save him on the basis that God's highest allegiance is to his own glory. David knows this about God. David knows that God's glory is why anything else exists at all. 
Yahweh, the one true God, the creator of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our Father through Jesus Christ our Lord, together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. This God made the world and all that's in it to showcase the glory of His name. God's name is His self-disclosure, is who He shows Himself to be in creation and providence and redemption. God's name is the truth of who He is that is put on display for us in His works and ways so that we can trust Him, which just magnifies His glory even more. And so back in the book of Exodus, when, when God tells Moses his name at the burning bush, remember God says there, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God is saying there in Exodus 3, I've told you my name, and I will always act according to my name. Remember that. Remember this. God authorizes those who trust Him to invoke Him by His name. God, God is saying, you can come to me. You can come to me on the basis of who I am. And that's what David is doing in Psalm 54. When, when David appeals to God's name, David is appealing to how God has revealed himself. David is appealing to the deepest, most glorious reality he knows. And of course, David wants to be rescued. His enemy is right on his heels. He wants to be rescued, but central to David's petition is that God is jealous for God's glory, and David is jealous for God's glory too. David wants the record of God's name to be set straight. He knows that his own salvation is bound up in God, showing himself to be who he is. And so it's standing on that truth in verse 1. Standing on that truth, David preaches to himself in verse 4, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. David says that based upon the truth of God. He says that based upon the security of his relationship with God. So there's a covenant of grace at work here, a covenant of grace behind these words, because, because God had set his mercy on David, because God had showed David mercy, and David responded in repentance and faith. There's a relationship, a covenant here between David and God. So I just want to be clear in saying that, that God is not everybody's helper. Okay? God is not everybody's helper. God is not the helper of the Ziphites. God is not the helper of Doeg the Edomite. God is not the helper of anyone who does not set God before themselves. God is the helper only of those who trust Him. God is the helper of the one who encounters the display of God's name and responds in humble faith. God is the helper of those who know that they need a helper. 
And this is why it's pray, then preach, see? It's pray, then preach. First, we we go to God as our helper. First, we go to God in this immediate reaction of the heart of faith, and we say, God, help me. Please help me. God, help me. The first thing we do is we go to God and pray for him to be our, for he is our helper. We ask him, God, you are our helper. We go to him as our helper, and then after we go to him in prayer, then we preach the truth that he is our helper. See, we go to him as our helper in prayer, and then we preach the truth that God is our helper. That's the example of David we see in Psalm 54. We, we preach the truth about God to ourselves. And a lot of times when we do this, it means that we're repeating basic truths, okay? And I, I want to say this because if you hear this, you know, you hear the idea of preaching to yourself, it, it could sound intimidating to you. Like you may be thinking, man, like, what, well, what do I preach? Like, what do I say to my soul? That's, that's a, a good question. And what you could do, you could just copy David here, right? Just say what he says. That's a good place to start. But also, I want you to know that... We don't necessarily have to learn new truths to preach to ourselves. We just need to remember the old truths that we've already learned. Okay. This, this reminds me of a scene in uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Christian is, uh, at one point in his journey, he and his friend Hopeful get captured by uh, giant despair. And giant despair takes him and he throws him in a dungeon in Doubting Castle. And they're thrown in this dungeon, and this dungeon was very, a very dark dungeon, nasty and stinking to their spirits. They were without one bit of bread or drop of drink or light or any to ask how they did. And in this scene, John Bunyan tells us that Christian had double sorrow. Christian was dangerously low. And from Wednesday to Saturday, giant despair attacked Christian and Hopeful with lies. He would beat them. He would, he would tell them they had no chance of escaping. They were going to be stuck in this dungeon forever. And Christian and Hopeful almost believed the lies, except that on Saturday night, they began to pray. And as Christian and Hopeful were praying, Christian as one half amazed, break out in passionate speech. And he says, why am I in this dungeon? I've got the key in my pocket. And the key was called promise. And this key actually unlocked every door in Doubting Castle. And so Christian and Hopeful go with the key, they unlock all the doors, and they continue on their way. The key was in his pocket. The truth that he needed all along was right there. So brothers and sisters, the key is in your pocket. I want you to know that it's, it's, a, it's a basic key, right? God is my helper. That's pretty basic right? It's a key. Or how about God is great, God is good. Some of us have 
learned that since we were kids. To, to know that God is great, that He is sovereign, that He reigns over all things, that His power is unstoppable, and to know that God is good, that His greatness and power is always wielded for what is ultimately best, and that for His people all His paths are steadfast love and faithfulness. See, we remember that and we preach it to ourselves. See. We remember that God is great, God is good, and we preach it to our souls. Or how about this one? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When's the last time you said that to your soul? That Jesus loves me, that I know he loves me. That I know Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me Jesus loves me. See, we remember this and we preach this to our souls. And of course, we always want to grow deeper and learn more truths about God, new truths about God in His Word. And we will, we will grow. But Christian, I want you to know that right now you know enough truth about God to be a good preacher to your soul, okay? You have enough truth to be a good preacher to your soul. The key's in your pocket. The key's in your pocket. So use it. Use it like David does here. God is my helper. God, the Lord is the upholder of my life. Verse 5, God's justice will be executed. God will put all things right. This is preaching to yourself. And David models it for us. So it's pray, verses 1, 2, 3, preach, verses 4 and 5, and now thirdly, praise, verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 6. With a freewill offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good, for he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. You see those words? See those words there? Verses 6 and 7. Now, later this fall, we're going to talk more about the meaning of sacrifices and offerings in the book of Leviticus, okay? It's going to be a blast, all right? But for now, I just, I'll just say this, the, the offering that David's talking about here, this free will offering, he's talking about an offering to God that has not been commanded or is not part of any vow that David has made. This is, this is important in verse 6. David did not try to make a deal with God in verse 1. He wants to be clear, that's not what this is. He didn't make a deal. He didn't do a fleece, okay? This is, David is saying, I will offer sacrifice to God. I will give thanks to God because I want to. Because I want to. That's what he's saying. Now, we saw in Psalm 50 and Psalm 51 that sacrifices by themselves, apart from the heart of faith, are worthless. Worse, God despises them, right? But when the heart is humble and when the affections are true, these kinds of sacrifices, this is the Old Testament way of entering into God's presence and staying a while, right? This is, this is, this is David saying to God that he desires fellowship with God. He wants to be with God. That's what he's saying. Verse 6, then, is an act of worship. And so David, entering into the presence of God, before and unto God, David says, 
I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. And there's God's name again, the same name invoked in verse 1, and remembered in verse 4, David now worships in verse 6. So this is David's praise. You see it, right? You see it? Pray, preach, praise. And we praise God because God is worthy of praise. God deserves our praise. There's no debate about that. But I want us to slow down here in closing and just look at the language in this psalm. Notice that this psalm starts in the present tense. Verse, verse 1, verse 4, God save me. God is my helper. That's present tense. David wants God to do this now. And yet from this same place, in the same psalm, in verse 6, David speaks about the future. He says, I will sacrifice to you. I, he says, I will give thanks to your name. See that? Now notice in verse 7 that David grounds this future act of praise in what God has done in the past. Look at verse 7. Look at the words of verse 7. For he has delivered me from every trouble. My eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So there is here past, present, and future in Psalm 54. And so what, what, do we, what do we make of this? What do we do with this? I, I, think, I think here it is. God, David's confidence that God will save him today and that he will praise God tomorrow is grounded in the fact that God has saved him in the past. See, up to this point, David says, God has delivered me from every trouble. Up to this point, I have looked in triumph on all my enemies, and if God did it in the past, then God can do it again. If God acted then according to his name, then he will do it now, and I will praise him. So track with me here. From where David is standing now, he can thank God for past victories, and he knows that in the future he will stand at a place and look back on this moment, when this moment is another past victory, and there he will thank God for this. That's David's confidence in God in Psalm 54. And if David has this kind of confidence in God because of his past victories, how much more confidence should we have in God because of his greatest victory? See, we have more than the examples of God's victory in our own lives to look back on. We even have more than God's faithfulness to his people in the Old Testament to look back on. Because, Christian, when we look back, we look back to an empty tomb. Jesus Christ, by his life and death and resurrection, he has saved us. 
He has vindicated us. He has given us His Holy Spirit and the assurance that He is always with us and that God hears our prayers. He has put our enemies to open shame by triumphing over them, including the worst enemy of all. Jesus has returned the evil of death to death because by Jesus, death has died. Death does not have the final say. Jesus has conquered it, but in fact, he has more than conquered it because now Jesus has made this worst enemy of mankind to be our chauffeur into the eternal presence of God where we will be with him forever, which is far better. Death is our enemy. Make no mistake about that. Do not make friends with death. Death is our enemy, but Jesus has triumphed over death. Jesus has been victorious over death. Jesus has defeated death, and one day in Him, so will we. And so we, we praise Him. We praise Him, right? We praise Him. <laughs> Only God knows this morning all the crisis situations in this room, the things that are happening in the moment, the things that are just ahead of us. Only God knows. But whatever situation you're in or might be in, Psalm 54 is a guide for you. If you're stuck, if you're in danger, if you're afraid, if you're overwhelmed, in God's mercy, by faith, pray, preach, praise. Father in heaven, we do praise you. We praise you, Father, because you are worthy of praise. You are above all. There is nothing greater and nothing better. You are the most high over everything, and you are, God, the exceeding joy of our souls. You created us for your glory, and and we know that in Jesus alone, because of Jesus alone, we are yours forever. And so we come to you in absolute surrender. Thank you, Father, that you set your love on us by your grace. And thank you, Father, that you have poured your love out for us in the death and resurrection of your Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, is our salvation. And we give you all the praise and honor in his name. Amen.